Welcome, everybody, to Next Bible Study Gathering, number three, I believe. Um, in case you're listening or watching or whatever you're doing, we have a lot different crowd tonight. Um, the first time, I think there was about 60 of us, and the second time, about 40 of us, and this time, there's maybe maybe a dozen of us. There's a lot going on. It's Thanksgiving week. A lot of people are traveling. Uh, a lot of special things happening. Uh, Brother Chase, a special, wonderful, dear child out of our church, is fighting for his life in the hospital. A lot of our people are uh, coming and going from Oklahoma City, trying to keep up with that family and Please, please keep Chase Muzzy in your prayers. Very, very important to all of us and to our hearts. But I felt like we needed to do this study, and there's been lots of questions online, hundreds of questions online, and um, this is one that has been asked a, a dozen different ways at least, so I want to try to tackle it. I uh, appreciate everybody that's here. I want to say again that um, my wife, my children, Brother Caleb and Sister Charity Driscoll, uh, which make up our staff here at the Saving Place, are are the power behind all of this. If you see them, please thank them for me because uh, we just can't do the things we're doing without them. They're the boots on the ground day-to-day -day, uh, workers that make it all happen. I had phone calls just today um, from a father telling me about testimonies of his sons and a mother telling me testimonies of her daughters, people that have listened to these uh, teachings and, and some of our preaching and uh, just really helping some people and changing lives. And and I, I always want to take the opportunity when I can to say that I, I cannot do this without my wife and, and our children and Brother Caleb and Sister Charity and uh, the people that have held those positions before them and all of our supporters are our, our prayer warriors. So thank you all so much. And thank everybody for being here tonight, for coming out on the week of Thanksgiving. Um, I know, I, I think I was told i taught about an hour and 20 minutes the first time and about an hour and five minutes the second time. I'd like to get this under an hour this time. I have no idea if that's even humanly possible for me or not, but would uh, I would really like to try. Uh, people here in the room and all around the country online are shaking their heads right now, but, uh, but we'll see what we can do. Hopefully we have some time for some Q&A afterwards, maybe even as well. This is next Bible study podcast number three. Um, this one here, we're actually calling it, What Does a Christian, Quotes, Look Like? What Does a Christian Look Like? Um, the question came in many forms, but I'm going to ask it in one particular form that came in an email from overseas a couple weeks ago. And uh, I've kind of incorporated in his question a lot of the overlapping questions that many have asked. Here is the question. We are from a Pentecostal evangelical group from a country outside of the United States of America. We are taught to acknowledge people as brothers and sisters in the faith if they wear the same Pentecostal evangelical garb and the hairstyles that match our faith. We are subsequently taught by our leaders to not acknowledge people as brothers and sisters in the faith if they do not wear the Pentecostal evangelical garb and the hairstyles that match our faith. My question is this. Is this appropriate Christian response? Is it the appropriate Christian response to only call people brother and sister if they look just like us and not call them brother and sister if they don't look just like us? 
My brothers and I and our wives that we fellowship in our small circle in this city do not find any Bible verses for this. We've looked. If it is not biblical, can you tell us any other reasons why it is appropriate to teach and continue to observe? Do you do this in your churches? Now, somebody's going to listen to this podcast and it's going to be two out of the first three are going to have very specifically to do with the outward standard. Um, I've already been told <laughs> several times that I'm attempting to tear down the standard and tear down holiness and, and I'm the devil's cousin and all of this stuff. Um, specifically, we started this to make some clarifications and to give some biblical responses and to help people that are struggling with with hypocrisies and misunderstandings. So all I can tell you is the outward standard is going to come up a lot. I'm not specifically targeting it, targeting it, but most of the questions are. And I don't I didn't pick this group of questions just because of that, but there's so much more to this one. I think when you see how we get down in the scriptures to answer this, when you'll see it actually answers a lot of things, not just this particular question. Here's, here's my answer. Um, first of all, the last part of the question is, do you do this in your churches? And the answer is yes. We do do this in our churches. We call people brother and sister that look like us. And we struggle to call anyone brother and sister that doesn't look like us. So... When I'm giving this answer, you have to understand and realize I'm, I'm answering you and us at the same time. I'm very familiar with what you're talking about. I do understand the biblical doctrine of relating to fellow believers as family. There are dozens and dozens of biblical references to this. Perhaps the most famous is in Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. It said, while he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and his brethren stood without desiring to speak with him. Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand towards his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. But there is a disconnect from Scripture sometimes after just making this particular point that these verses make, maybe because it's much harder to know someone and their actions and intentions than it is to just look at them and judge them by what you see. Perhaps, and I personally believe this to be true, but perhaps the original use of calling people brother and sister that looked like Christians was because of the firm belief that if Christ was in a man or in a woman's heart, then he would make his way onto their outward appearance as well. I, I think most of us believe that, and that I'm fine with. But ministries get lazy, and churches start taking shortcuts. Christianity is not a lazy way, and there is no shortcuts to heaven. This happens all the time. First, it may start out with, if you repent and confess, then Christ will enter your heart, and once he's in your heart, then he will lead you and you will obey him. And ultimately, that will have an effect on where you go and what you say and what you spend money on and eventually what you wear. Now, that is a followable doctrine. 
But after decades and decades of lazy preaching for the shout and churches that silently disagree, I I did that and lost my... uh, I'm I'm picking on somebody here in the the audience. Um, Lazy preaching for the shout and churches that silently disagree but, but goes along with, or... Or saints that know better but understand, quote, what he means. It all gets boiled down to that whole doctrine that I just explained, just eventually becomes, if you're saved, you'll wear this. That becomes the doctrine. And after, after all of that happens, to me it's very, very sad because there's so many beautiful and powerful teachings and doctrines that help make up the the fabric of who the Christian body really is that that are overlooked and eventually lost in the process of just narrowing these things down to these quick little points. Watered-down principles such as don't wear jewelry, don't watch movies, don't date, these are not biblical doctrines. They're not principles of God. They're not holy standards. They are the church's eventual morphed interpretations of true doctrines that mean so much more than these oversimplified rules and paper laws that we have developed over time by powerful hungry leaders, by lazy followers, by being born into religious movements. God has laws and precepts and statutes and rules and oracles and practices and standards and and principles and commandments about masculinity, about femininity, about humility, about soberness, about time-wasting and lust and pride and selfishness and love and, and on and on and on. And it was never his intention for us to narrow all of his standards of holiness down to a list of the top 100 don'ts. But sometimes that's where we end up. In my humble opinion, many of the independent free holiness church standards in Western countries, like America and like the one that the, the guy that authored this question is, is at, now, now this may shock some of you when I say this, but I think many of our standards are far too loose. I think they're too worldly and I think they're too carnal because they only deal with the appearance and the purchase and the putting on of things and the physical going to or not going to places. We need to stop trying to create perfect atmospheres and stop trying to be as tight as the fellowship and trying to preach it higher than the last guy. And we need to slow down and learn what the Bible says and teach it to a starving generation. For example, when it comes to this question, how to know if a person is saved or not? Let's, let's go ahead and do something crazy tonight. Let's, let's use the Bible as our guide this time. The Bible doesn't necessarily talk about what a Christian looks like, per se. In a few rare places, still very important places, it does take, uh, talk some about some outward signs of a mature Christian woman. I found that. Long hair, shamefacedness, etc., But it doesn't give appearance qualifications of a convert of Christ. It does not specify the physical appearance or clothing or garb, as as the writer of the question called it, of a saved person. That's not in there. It does 
somewhat tell us how to tell if someone is born again or not. It just doesn't use a dress code to do it. This doesn't mean that I do not believe in a dress code uh, and have biblical reasons for the dress code, but it confuses people when we start crossing things up and making connections and assumptions that scriptures don't teach. If you want to talk about how dress code applies to humility, how dress code applies to selfishness, how dress code applies to lust, etc., I can do that scripturally, no problem. I can have that conversation with you. If you want to talk about how to determine if a person is saved or not by looking at them, if they're part of the family or not, if they're going to heaven or not, if they're qualified to be called brother or sister or not, then we have to stick with what the Bible says about that and not bring in other stuff that, that doesn't apply. For my example, tonight I want to look at um, some verses in, in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 3 said, Hereby we do know that we know him. It's going to give us a reason of how to know if somebody knows Jesus. This is how you know if somebody's saved. The question is, who do we call brother or sister, depending on what they look like? This is, this is uh, John writing to us and says, let me tell you how you know if somebody's saved. And he actually does it a number of times, and we're going to look at three of the times. He said, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. So one way to know if somebody's saved or not is if they keep his commandments. Verse uh, 14 in chapter 3, the next chapter, says, we know that we have passed from death unto life, talking about being saved, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. So now we have keeping his commandments and loving the brethren. Chapter 5, verse 12, he says, He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. So here's three examples how to know if somebody's saved or not. Are they keeping the commandments? Do they love the brethren? And do they have life? Now, the problem I have is almost every fellowship I've ever been in, anywhere in America or anywhere else, these that I can easily point out in Scripture of what God says a Christian looks like are not our standard. That's not how we judge. We have ways to judge if someone is saved or not, and it's not the ways that the Bible teaches. There's a problem. The Apostle John is writing a letter to several Gentile churches in general, and we must understand something about this author and his authority in what he writes about. At the moment of these writings, John is most likely the only living original apostle of Jesus Christ. This was before he was banished to Patmos, probably still residing in Ephesus. Now, what I want us to glean from this little book here is this, the idea of how do you know if someone's saved did not originate with our generation. It did not originate with the last generation, and it did not originate with the generation before that one. John, who was alive when Christ was, is writing this invaluable eternal book and continues to show different ways to know that you know that you're saved. Chapter 2, verse 3, hereby we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. And chapter 5, verse 12, he that hath the Son hath life. If, if you'll let me put into my, my own terms here for just a few moments, some folks in the Bible where we're reading, they were saying that they are born again 
or not born again, depending if they were circumcised or not circumcised. Others at this exact point in the Bible were saying that they are born again or not born again because they were either baptized or not baptized. And then there's these guys over here that are saying they're born again or not born again because they drink out of certain cups and they attend certain ceremonies. 2,000 years ago, they were having the exact same issue that, that we're having right now. Well, we're saved because we go to this church. Well, we're saved because we wear these. Well, we're saved because we won't go there. Well, we're saved because it's no different. And Apostle John says, without mocking any of the others, without downgrading uh, any of the others, without taking away from the place of the rites and the rituals of anyone else, this man that, that, that knew God personally, walked with him, talked with him, slept near him, ate meals with him, this man that most likely saw more direct conversions, more new births than any other human being on the planet at the time that this letter was written, he said, let me tell you about the marks of a born-again Christian. Let me tell you what a Christian looks like. He's not saying that these are the all-encompassing factors. He's not even saying that these are the maturest denominators. He's merely stating that these marks are the marks of a new birth. This is what a changed life looks like. This is how you know if someone's born again, and it's not changed, and it never will. Birthmark number one, we keep his commandments. This one seems easy when dealing with some of the people that I'm used to dealing with, but it gets much more complicated in the, quote, church world. I was on the streets of Tulsa quite a while back, and a, a, a man that had been going to our church some, but fell out recently at that point, he, I, I looked him up and began to talk to him, and this was his comment to me. He said, Pastor Todd, I'm still saved. But I do have a pornography addiction and a meth addiction, and, and, I'm, and I'm trying to deal with it. And I had to be the one to look this man in the eye and tell him that his version of saved was in direct defiance of the Apostle John's version of saved. It had nothing to do with what he was wearing, nothing to do with what he had purchased that week, but it had everything to do with what the Bible said. Let me try to uh, explain this in the plainest of terms. You cannot continue in sin and be a born-again Christian. That's what he's teaching. You may struggle. You may be tripped up. You may have to repent. You may need to get forgiveness for something you did or said or thought. You may fight against temptations. It may take the Lord some time to convict and convince you of certain things. But you cannot continue in sin and be born again. Now, not all of these sins are drugs and alcohol and sexual promiscuity. Some of these sins are pride and jealousy and gossip. And part of the problem with our way of picking what a Christian looks like or not is they could easily have pride and jealousy and gossip and still fit our version of a Christian. That's a problem. Let me define this. Sinning can be broken into two categories. It's either the breaking of God's written physical laws or it's the breaking of God's unheard, unseen spirit laws or the laws of the conscience. His written physical laws are obvious. Thou shalt not steal, shalt not kill, shalt not commit adultery, shalt not lie. Um, not supposed to have hatred or jealousy or bitterness or doubt. These are laws that are physically written in the book and they're to be followed by all or you're a sinner. 
The unheard, unseen spirit laws are often referred to as convictions. In other words, these are things that you feel like God wants you to do or doesn't want you to do. And convictions are between you and God. Not, not you and me, not me and God and you, just you and God. But both types of laws apply to determine if you're a sinner or not. So here's the rule. If you break a written rule of God or you do something that you feel convicted about that isn't a rule of God, then you do not have birthmark number one. You do not have this mark of the new birth. According to the Apostle John, if you continue in sin, you are not born again. Birthmark number two, we love the brethren. This one can be way, way more complicated than what most people believe it to be. I realize that when a sinner that is bound by burdens and chains of darkness gets delivered and set free from hell and torments, they no doubt fall in love with those whose efforts were present when they were experiencing this amazing phenomenon. We all been there when somebody gets saved and they get up and they just start hugging everybody, even people they don't know. They just they just hug. They just they're just so in love with with the people that are involved in this situation because they feel free and they they think you know you you helped and you're a part of it and you probably were and that's wonderful. But it's it's much much greater than that. When one is born again, there is such a hunger for truth that evolves, such a love for that which is righteous and holy, and thus a tremendous desire for and respect for the brethren that represent that which is righteous and that which is holy. Now, here's a point worth making. Being as though none of us agree on all the same things, then how can we be upset with those who disagree with us and love them at the same time? Either everyone that believes very much differently than me is wrong, and we got lots of examples of those around, or... We have to under, understand and accept that there is a human variance, and I'm supposed to love and get along with as best I can all who claim and portray the new birth. I, for one, have people that, that believe differently than me. I know that's hard for you all to accept. I get that. There, there are people that believe differently than me. There are people that believe differently than you. I have people that disagree with me, people that, that heatedly oppose my stance on certain things, people that outright despise my stance on certain things, uh, people that outright despise me personally. Uh, that, I mean, lots of different variations of disagreeing with me. In, in each one of these categories are people that in most ways appear to me to be the brethren. Now that, that puts you in a spot. When everything they're doing seems to match up with a Christian and then they heatedly oppose you. How then do I deal with that? It's easy to despise them back, belittle them back, marginalize them back. But if you do that, then you lose the proper birthmarks. Was Paul saved when he withstood Peter to his face? Of course he was. Did he appear to run him down and name call him and send out agents to work against his ministry? No, he did not. He had the proper birthmarks. What about when he had issues with, with Mark? Did, did Paul seek to destroy Mark, put him out of the ministry? 
run him from the fellowship? Obviously not, because later he told Timothy to bring Mark because he could be profitable. Listen, there are people that I, that I want working on the streets of Tulsa for HMA, but maybe I don't want them in the general office. There are people that I would preach on a Wednesday night to the home folks, but I wouldn't want them preaching on an outreach service. There are people I know that, that need to learn more and mature more, but do I hate them? I better not. Do I want them destroyed? Of course not. There are people that have worked hard to destroy me, and God has shown me some great benefits of having them around. I know that's a hard saying, but it's true. He's even shown me how some of them really believe that they're in his will and that he's working with them. And he's also at the same time taught me to love them. It's a birthmark that I have. I know plenty of people, and, and, and so do you, that they wear all the right garments. They, they, they have the, the length and the, the colors, and the fabrics, and the hairstyles, and they got it all right. And yet, they bicker, and they backstab, and they tail bear, and they, they... All I'm saying is, I just want to use the Bible. I just want you to show me the birthmarks. That's how I will determine if somebody's a Christian or not. Birthmark number three is my favorite one, if we have life. I, I've met people of all standards, of all doctrines, of all beliefs to this day. One of the things that I still believe is that there is a percentage of every religious group that is as right as they know how to be. Most of the time, it is easy to tell which ones they are because they bring life and not death. They are the great fulfillers of 1 John 5 and 12. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Think about this. In every supposed saved group of people, there is a group amongst the group that works to help others, works to save others, has seemingly undying, untiring drive to give help and hope and joy and love and life. When one is sick, they're visiting. When one is hungry, they're feeding. When one is wounded there. They're pouring in the wine and the oil. They are the counselors of the distraught, the friend to the uh, distrusting. When, when others accuse, these are the ones that advise. When others lash out, these are the ones that lend a hand. Some will finish you off, but these are the ones that will help start you over. Some will ruin you. These will try to restore you. When you see the saved coming, it doesn't look like the grim re reaper, no matter what you've done. As bad as you might have been, when you see the saved coming, it looks more like an angel in disguise than it does somebody with a hammer and a nail for that last nail in your coffin. I've worked, everybody here knows this, I've worked with the Baptist, the Nazarene, the Presbyterian, the Catholic, the Pentecostal, the Charismatic. There is a group within every group that I always walk away feeling like, they're the real thing. They're the real thing. And of course, there's always a group that doesn't look like us. So if our only standard of 
if someone is saved or not, if they're a brother or a sister or not, is if they're wearing what we're supposed to be wearing. I have a huge problem with that, only because I feel like the Bible has a huge problem with that. Something that has bothered me for some time, and, and, and I myself had fallen deep into the trap, but life and life more abundantly looks different than what a lot of Christians are portraying it does. To have life is to live. To live is to love and walk and bike and fish and build and talk and laugh and encourage and, and work through problems. This is not what we're always witnessing to those that appear to be the saints. Oftentimes we're taught to believe that the more cold and distant and, and only willing to work with the negative and the attacks and, and point out who is wrong and who messed up and who needs reprimanded, that these are the most spiritual people amongst us. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying tonight that's, that's unbiblical. If the most spiritual people amongst us are the most negative, hard, get you when you're down, point out who's not doing it right and that is their system that is their lifestyle we we have an unbiblical system i'm not saying that a christian should be lighthearted and giggly and goofy and unconcerned about the world but but when they were first called christians at antioch do you think they were called christians because they were all mad and grumpy and accusatory and unable to get along with uh, anyone who disagreed with them is that how they pointed out Christians in Antioch? Or perhaps they called them Christians because they lived so simply and so pure and so happy and so such holy lives. Perhaps because they too suffered the little children to come into them. Perhaps they too bounced the babies on their knees. And listen, I know, I know some of the strictest living people in the world that are alive with life and love. And, and, and I love being around them. And I know people of all levels of strictness in between. But I also know people of each diversity of strictness that are rude and angry and ruthless and all around them are the dead and the dying carcasses of those that they have slain with their version of religion. I had somebody try to talk to me the other day about what the Christians in Antioch looked like. You, you do realize that everybody in Antioch was wearing the same clothes, right? I mean, do, do, you, do you think there was a bunch of women in Antioch walking the streets half-naked? Like there are today in Hollywood and at the mall in Tulsa? They all had basically the same clothes. Do you think there was a Pentecostal hairstyle in Antioch? The beehive or whatever was in in the 50s and 60s that we still worship today or whatever we're doing? How did they know that those guys on the streets of Antioch are, are Christians and those guys on the streets of Antioch are not? You had to see something. I think you saw love and you saw joy and you saw strength and you saw victory and you saw care and you saw concern bubbling out on these people. You saw humility and you saw modesty. I think that's how they could tell. And I think this guy 
was full of love and joy and victory and help and honesty and modesty, wearing a tan robe. And this guy was angry and, and cheating and lying and conniving and bitter and lustful, wearing a tan robe. Christians are going to be healthy, vibrant, active, life livers. Not because I said so, because John said so. They, Christians are not generally gluttonous. They are not oversleepers. They are not overbearing. They are not self-worshipping. They are not tailbearers. They do not systematically plan the demise of others that they don't, dis, they don't trust. Do you agree with me that a lot of those things, you can see it? on somebody if you're around them very often. Who do you see as the life livers in the Bible stories? How about the prodigal son? Who's the life liver in the prodigal son? The father looking anxiously, waiting, running, embracing, giving, restoring, party throwing dad. He was the life liver. It wasn't the elder son sulking, complaining, avoiding the festivities. I've, I've read books, 100-year-old books, that put the father and the elder son as Christians and the wayward son, the prodigal, as, as a sinner. Not true. There was two sinner sons. And the Bible very plainly lets us see a depiction, one of them, looked like a, 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 a lustful, party animal, uh, addictive personality, uh, money waster, uh, won't work. That's what he looked like. He was a sinner. The other son, vindictive, complaining, sulking, won't, won't be a part of the family festivities. He looked like a sinner too. Probably, probably had a good robe on though. I'm, I'm not trying to pick it apart. I'm trying to depict what the Bible depicts. Matter of fact, in the same parable, we have a rejoicing shepherd that found a lost lamb. We have a woman who invites her friends over to celebrate with her the rediscovery of the coin that she had lost. What about the story of the ten virgins? At the end, the real Christians went into the supper party to live it up, if you will. The fake stayed out where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. Look at the life livers. David invites Mephibosheth to eat at his table. Boaz entreats Ruth to glean and rest and eventually marry. My conclusion will sound harsh to some, yet liberating and refreshing to others. No matter how many crosses hang around your neck, that doesn't signal your salvation. Lots of rock and roll stars do the same. Staying covered and modest and completely covered up all the time is wonderful and godly, but jihadist Muslims do the exact same thing. Avoiding carnality and worldliness is great and commanded, but hermits and Amish people do the same thing. But rock and roll stars and jihadist Muslims and hermits, to me, are not exactly symbols of life. But real Christians will be. 
So trying to deal with sinners, make converts out of them and disciple them into good, holy, godly living saints is, is complicated enough. But when we have many churchgoers, supposed saints that have attended for a long time and even ministry workers and minister, ministers that, that may or may not even be saved, it, it completely complicates things. It, it causes this generation to be as confused as they are. Part of the solution is using the right measuring stick to measure by. If someone prays and then dresses right immediately because they're either told to or they already knew to before they were saved, then we're going to call them saved. Sometimes we're going to call them saved just because they got they prayed on Sunday and they dressed right on Wednesday. But later on, sometimes they cause all kinds of problems in the church, which in turn confuses each following generation. Because they had to be saved, or why else would they all of a sudden dress right? But then, they were deadly and poisonous to our, our body, our, our, our local fellowship. Listen, the outside can be faked. It is very real in a real Christian. But it just is not a good gauge to gauge by. Now, obedience and love and care and concern for others and a real ability to live and produce life, that's hard to fake. You ever, you ever knew anybody that tried to fake concern for you? We've all seen that. you got to be retarded to not pick up on that most of the time. Will the new birth produce modesty and sanctification? It absolutely will. It always does. But in the beginning, in the very beginning, you will know who has been born again and who has not because they will be teachable, they will love everybody, and they will come alive in Christ Jesus. They will have the birthmarks. And no matter how far they, they mature and they grow into other things, they will never outgrow their birthmarks. The idea that so many that are hard and mean and dominating amongst us are because they are so much further along than most of us is garbage. Show me the birthmarks. Don't tell me how deep and spiritual and grand and holy and God-sent you are when you don't even measure up to the simplest things that decide if, if you're saved or not according to Scripture. This one got saved, but uh, you can't teach them anything. This one got saved, but they're still so hateful towards so-and-so. Those are saved, but they're always dying and always shrinking and always splitting and always self-destructing. No, they are not saved. You are not born again. They may be religious, but you're not born again without the birthmarks that God said with the marks of a Christian. So I've said a lot here, but uh, if, if, if you're encouraged to, for religious purposes, call people brother or sister based on an exalted standard of what garment of clothing that each person is wearing, you're a little too cultic for me. I, I think I'm past that. If, if that upsets anybody, I'm sorry. 
Of course, Christians are going to be modest and cover up and all of those things. But just because someone is covered up doesn't mean that they're not hiding a devil underneath there. And, and besides all of that, I'm just going to trust Scripture on this one. Okay, on all of them. I believe that a Christian can be spotted the same way that John said they could. I could oversimplify it like this if, if, if we wanted to. If someone claims to be a born-again believer, I call them brother or sister, unless I see signs according to Scripture that they are not. Me calling them one or not calling them one isn't going to change their eternal destination one bit. And I can't see what God sees, the heart. I've seen people get criticized because they were preaching a funeral and they said somebody was going to heaven or not going to heaven. And then they approached me after the funeral. They want to know what I thought about it. I always tell them the same thing. I always think the same thing. What that guy said about that person that's already gone doesn't have anything to do with where they are. I can't say you're in heaven and you're going to heaven. I can't say you're in hell and you're going to hell. I can't call you brother and, and make you saved. Or I can't not call you brother and keep you from being lost. I mean, what I say doesn't matter. It is so unique to me, and I want you to catch this right here towards the end. I, I picked out three. I think there's maybe seven five or seven, I don't remember, that John used. Um, you, you notice that the, the, the birthmarks that John said are the, the ways to determine if someone's a Christian or not. They, it would be impossible. He gave things that there's no other way to even do them. Except to be a Christian. Our standards, people can do them if they want to and not even be saved. The Bible standards, you couldn't do them if you wanted to. You would have to be saved, Brother Dustin. How many here could keep the commandments without Jesus? <laughs> if you could, there's no reason for Jesus. How many of you here have got it within your own flesh to love everybody? That's impossible. Jesus is life. The world and the devil and the flesh is death. How are you going to produce life while you're dying? It's amazing that we have standards that, that could be faked. And the Bible standards can't be faked. And we've decided to not just stick with the Bible standards. Let me ask you this before I go here. Uh, when is someone saved? How long after someone repents, confesses, and believes are they saved? Right, right after? What if they weren't dressed right while they repented? 
Are they not saved or maybe not as saved yet, even though they repented until they dressed right and then they would be more saved? Are they not a brother in Christ yet until they change their garments? Maybe they didn't know to change clothes. So they have to be taught by someone. You, me, the Holy Ghost, pastor. Are they more a member of the family of God after they learn to dress right than before they learn to dress right? Or is saved saved? I, I, know, I know I'm going to get comments on this one. I'll, I'll open my email in the morning. I won't be scared. Because I know what some are going to say. Yeah, well, if they knew better, if they go too long, if it rocks on, rocks on for how long? What's the standard at your church? Two weeks, three months, a year? Who gets to determine that? Or is saved saved? If saved is saved, and he goes down with just a jacket on, but no shirt, and his jacket ain't even buttoned up, and you just see his bare chest right there. It's going to make a lot of folks uncomfortable. I get that. But he goes down, and he repents, and he prays through, and he gets up with just his unbuttoned jacket on and no shirt on. Is he a brother yet? I get it. I get. I know, I know. I can already hear. I can already read the emails in my mind. I get it. I know what we expect. I know what God expects. I know the progress and the procession. I get it. All I'm saying is the question was, how do we know who we can call brother and who we can't? Because we're taught people are saved that look like us and people that aren't saved that don't look like us. Brother Sloggett, what's your answer to that? My answer is John's answer. There are standards, and they're impossible to fake, and they're not what you're wearing. You see, the problems that we create when we start messing with doctrine and defining it outside of Scripture, I'll leave it with this. Listen closely to these ministries out there. So many of them already believe something, and then they try to find a verse to back up what they believe. And then they preach it to you to try to make you believe what they believe according to a verse they found that backs up what they believe. That means that they're always right. That means God wrote the Bible to prove them right. We're not going to do that here. We're going to find what the Bible says and we're going to proclaim it. We're going to let the chips fall. Holiness, Nazarene, Pentecostal, agnostic, conservative, Democrat, Republican, Southerner, Westerner, American, European. Sometimes it's going to cut you. Sometimes it's going to cut me. But the truth is, the truth, that's what we're after. The truth is what we're after. This podcast is sponsored by The Saving Place, a rustic furniture and mattress store with the deepest line of rustic, western, and farm-style furniture in the state of Oklahoma. 
We are located at 619 East Dewey Avenue in Sepulpa, Oklahoma. Or you can find us online at thesavingplace.net or search The Saving Place on Facebook. Is there any questions or comments or discussion now that my daughter got half a second opening? She raised her hand. What, Tirza? Uh, I've heard people talk before about people that have like eating disorders or depression or anxiety. And that doesn't necessarily like show life. How do you tell with somebody like I'm just thinking, eating disorders and depression. Well, I, I, I may have to study that out a little better to give you a better answer. I will say this, this much just off the top of my head. I, I always felt like it's good that he gave us multiple birthmarks. Because one person may be struggling in one area, another person may be struggling in another area. Um, you know, we're, we're not perfect. We know that. We're still human. We're still in the flesh. We're fighting these battles. We're fighting them with Christ. And, you know, if you're keeping the commandments, uh, you're not lying, not cheating, not stealing, not doing drugs, not, um, you know, all these different things. And then you're having a struggle in a particular area. That's, that's what Christ is there for. That's what the Holy Ghost is there for. That's what the Bible is there for. And the victory is in whatever answers that the Bible gives us. But everybody doesn't have the victory in everything all the time. For example, you named depression. Um, of course, I've, I've, I've done Christian counseling for two decades, and depression is something. Drugs, depression, and, um, and marital counseling are the three things I've done the most counseling on. And... Every psychologist, every psychiatrist, every psychopharmacologist, every book that I've read that's been published in the last 40 years, all of them either are way out in left field, crazy, crazy, just take, take drugs and medicine, and, or, or it's just you're born that way and you can't get just weird stuff. Or, as a general rule, 99% of them all come to the exact same conclusion, and it's so unique that the conclusion that they come to is one that was already in the Bible before any of their great-great-great-grandparents were ever born. Depression is a battle. It's a struggle. It can be a sin. Um, and the, the cure for depression is purpose. That's taught in the Bible in several places. I, I have a whole sermon lesson on it. Um, you and I have had all kinds of discussions about it. And uniquely enough, psychopharmacologists and psychiatrists and counselors all over the world have come to the same conclusion, even ones that are atheists, even ones that are agnostics. Nature itself teaches that you combat depression with its polar opposite, and its polar opposite is, is purpose commitment, things like that. Those are the same conclusions they come to. So the good news is whatever we're battling, the Bible has the answer for it. Whatever our struggle is, there's a victory in Christ for it. Uh, do I think if somebody is has a particular battle or a particular struggle or a particular issue that you know they got 20, 30, 40, 50 of these things right and they're hurting in one or two areas, do I think they're not saved? 
that's not for me to judge, and I don't believe that anyway. Um, or else everybody would pray and get up perfect. Sure. The, the, the fight and work on part is the part I look for when I'm doing counseling. If, they, if people are giving to gambling or giving to pornography or giving to their depression, I know people that have depression that are constantly doing better and then worse and then better and worse because they're fighting and they're struggling and they're trying to come up with ways to do better and they're praying and, they're, and, and I'm, I'm fine with that. That's, that's what we're supposed to be doing. But we also all know somebody that just, I mean, depression is, is their identity. It's who they are. They absorb it. They, 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 they love it almost. I mean, it's, it's, it's their, it's their, their security blanket is their depression. It is part of who you have to know to know them. I got a problem with that because the fight's not there. The battle's not there. You know, there's that story of Candy Hill Hempel Christmas that starts with Ruth Ministry, and she was depressed, and that's how she overcame it was finding her purpose. The end all, the end all, cure all is the blood of Christ. I mean, that's the cure for sin, biblically speaking. The cure for any sin, and and we're talking about in a in a sinful state, the cure for any sin is the blood of Christ. Period. But everything that we battle in a natural, physical, mental, emotional state has an exact cure. Oh, I, I, I don't know if I could use the word cure. Correct. And lots of people get, get through their depression without taking any medicine. It depends if it's a chemical imbalance or not in a lot of ways. Um, chemical imbalances, sometimes you need you know, more medical treatment, non-chemical imbalances that ha are still very, very real depressions. Uh, hopefully people don't get on chemicals because non-chemical imbalance, a drug's never going to help. Um, you know, this is something that me and Tears could talk about all, all day and all night. My, my mom was really bad depressed uh, almost her whole life, had all kinds of anxiety and depression issues. I have battled that my entire adult life. Tears just had some problems with that recently. So, uh, this, you know, this is real close to home for us. And I've read books and books and books, but you still, you go back to the scripture. You know, um, the sin of addiction in the Bible is selfishness. And, and the opposite of selfishness is selflessness. So the Bible throughout the entire New Testament and even some references in the Old Testament teaches that overcoming addiction is through selflessness. So here we are looking at the exact same scale of things on depression. The, the way Jesus' answer to overcoming depression is through purpose. Depression takes away your purpose. You know, Christ gives you back a purpose. So, you know, if I'm going to use the word cure the, for anything, you know, cure, the cure is the blood. But the blood is so multifaceted, and the scriptures give us so many of the right answers. Uh, when I counseled uh, pornography, depression, gambling, suicidal thoughts, all these things, the only thing I know to do is go back and find 
in the scripture what the opposing factors are and and try to teach somebody that and and by far and away that's been the most successful things we've ever done anybody else What does a Christian look like? You got to put the quotes in there. Look like. If you don't do that, it doesn't make sense. It's not as cool. I'm going to have you teach one of these one time. I'm going to ask the questions. <laughs> Actually, I get asked that all the time. Um, I mean, there's, there's so many technical things to go into on that. And, and this is what I've always taught. Um, I believe that that's a societal created extra addiction. And, and you're right. I don't know how many people have come on meth, on cocaine, on heroin, on all these issues. And then they God delivers them from those. And then they still smoke. You know, most of you here remember Bill Matthews. Bill Matthews got delivered in a second from like a 17, 18 year meth addiction and smoked for like four more years and then gave up cigarettes like two weeks before he died. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I don't know how to put my finger on that. I, I do if I think about it logically, but I, I couldn't just give you a scripture or something for it. And I, and I hate to, you know, say things that I don't just have the Bible for. But to me, you know, it, it has a lot to do with, with how society trains human nature. Cigarettes are legal and they're cool and they're in. When you're from that lifestyle, everybody smokes. And you're, you're like a goofball if you don't. And, you know, anybody can buy them, and, and it's just it's, it's naturally accepted. We don't think about it that way. I remember that lifestyle. Thank God you don't. Um, but I, I didn't know anybody that didn't have cigarettes on them. When I wanted one, I just asked for one. Um, and when I say drug addict... It just brings this horrible negative connotation. Everybody, nobody wants to be called a drug addict. When I counsel people, there's two things they do. They, can't, they cringe when I say it. And I say it a lot on purpose because I'm trying to get through their thick head that they really are one so I can help them. And I, 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 somebody's sitting across the desk from me all the time. I say, well, you're a drug addict. And because you're a drug addict, and now that you're a drug addict, now you admit you're a drug addict, and they just, oh, they hate to be called a drug addict. Or pornography is another one. When you say pornography, they just cringe. But a drug addict is so negative. It's so destructive. It's so mean. It's so bad. It's so horrible. You're going to prison. You're getting mouth sores. You're losing your teeth. You're a drug addict. You're, you probably steal from your grandparents. You're a drug addict. Drug addict is such a negative thing. But you say a smoker. Now, to us, it's different. You know, we're, we're independent, free holiness people, and we live in this little bubble, a lot of us. But most people in the real world, you say cigarette, that doesn't mean nothing to them. That's like saying I drink Pepsi. 
So I, I feel like they're more prepared to break free from that negative, horrible, ugly, nasty, lying, cheating sin of addiction. So when God gives them that, that grace, they, they run from it and, and he blesses them for that, but they don't necessarily run from something that is, is they're pre-programmed to accept. It's socially acceptable. I, I've always leaned towards that. And there, that's, that's not a doctrine or I don't have scripture for that, but I know where I came from and I know a lot, a lot of people in those lifestyles. And I've, I've taught that different places and I've yet to have anybody disagree with me. Doesn't mean it's true, but. How can they be saved when they still have that? When they're still smoking? Because salvation is not, we just got done teaching a, an hour thing right here. Salvation is not what you're physically doing. Can you be saved and go watch a movie? Can you be saved and wear a pair of pants? Can you be saved and smoke a cigarette? Yeah, you can. You absolutely can. Because salvation is the heart and is of the soul. Now, all of those things have negative connotations. Uh, watch, I named three things. Some of them doctrinal, some of them not, but they all have negative connotations. Can you go to a movie and be saved? Of course you can. Are most movies inappropriate for Christians? Yes. Could you be saved and wear a pair of pants? Of course you could. We dealt with that back when. But doesn't God want a separation of the sexes? Yes, he does. And that's the way to culturally do that now is for you to wear a skirt. Don't, don't do this, which is what most extremely conservative Christian groups do. Don't start building lists of, of categorizing, well, I'm, you know, I'm a Christian, so Drinking, smoking, uh, sexual promiscuity, these things, these, this is a list of its own. And then over here, going to movies and wearing clear nail polish and, and lipstick and things, this is eh, a different list. And then over here, this is just something that just dad or pastor likes, and this is everybody knows that there's, there's nothing biblical, but this is a different, don't do that. That's what we're teaching against. It's a heart and a soul issue when you're saved. It gets in your heart. It gets in your soul. You will begin to obey the commandments. You will begin to produce life. Does smoking produce life or death? Death. You, your grandma that you're named after, my mom, died 49 years old. Lung cancer. Been smoking since she was 14. So would that continue? No. What? amount of time are you going to put on it that when somebody gets saved, they have to have stopped by? You personally. Two weeks? Three months? A year? Okay, well, that's the question you're asking, and I can't, I can't put one on it either.
Are we done? Until the Holy Ghost, uh, you know, or God points it out to you and then he draws you away away from that. And so would it be considered an idol or something that is not not in like the physical sense like we worship smoking, but if it takes time away, it's something they're addicted to and they can't live without, wouldn't would that be considered something I don't know that is um, an idol to you because you're not worshiping God and you're not giving God everything, you have something else that you have to have and you can't live without and you don't can't do without because of I mean it's destroying you, it's destroying your lungs. And it's something that you can't live without. Would that be considered an idol or a sin against him because you're destroying the comfort that he gave you and it's addicting to you? Sin against him? Yes, once you're of the knowledge of it. Idol? Let me, let me be careful how I answer this. <laughs> because of who we are and how we were raised and where we go to church and who we fellowship and what we've been taught, you can take that word idle and you could stretch it as far as you want to stretch it. And depending on how far you stretch it, then my answer would eventually have to be yes. But, and this is why, it's why I think it's hard for some people to hear some of my answers because um, I'm almost a little bit more agnostic than most of everybody that, I'm, I'm more agnostic than probably anybody in this room. And what I mean by that is I'm not an agnostic, um, but I'm more agnostic. Let me, let me explain what I mean. You really have, you have atheists, you have agnostics, and you have believers. And atheist thinks that there is no God. And agnostic believes there is a God. And he's in control of the whole universe, and he created everything. But he doesn't deal directly in every second of every day of every single person's life. That's an agnostic. We always say an atheist and agnostic is about the same thing. They are not. One's a believer and one's not. And then your true believers are, have many, many, many variations, all the way to the extremist believer, which is like the super, super, super holiness person, whatever, that they believe you know, God's just talked to them all day, every day, and everything they do. They wake up in the morning, they pray, and they wanted cornflakes, but God told them to eat Cheerios, and so they ate the Cheerios because the Spirit led them to the Cheerios, and, and then they got ready to get dressed, and they almost wore their blue shoes, but the Holy Ghost moved and had them wear their red shoes. You know, all day long, God, God told me this, God told me that, God sent me here, God's doing this, God's blessing, God's God. And, and everything that happens in their entire life, every second of every day, is God's fault. A lot of the people we fellowship are closer to that than I am. I believe God set the laws of nature and put them in place. I believe you drink too much alcohol, you're going to get cirrhosis of the liver, and I don't believe God sends the Holy Ghost to touch your liver and give you cirrhosis on a particular Thursday. I just believe that's the laws of nature. God did that, yes. Um, that goes even goes back to what I was teaching last time about is there an exact person for every person to marry? You know, well, actually, God taught each person how to be the best marriage partner. So there's, I don't want to confuse a lot of people might not like this agnostic talk, 
But I, I'm a faithful believer. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the moving of the Spirit and all of that. But we have a tendency because we're, most of our fellowship is zero tolerance agnostic. They're super, super, super spiritual, spiritual, spirit, everything, spirit, 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 Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost. God told me this. God showed me this. God moved here. And by doing that, we start to do kind of what you were just doing, taking the word idol, which has a real definition. It has a real Greek definition, a real Hebrew definition, a real Aramaic definition, a real Chaldean definition, a real English definition, a real Russian definition, a real German definition. It's a real word with a real definition, and it doesn't quite fit exactly there. But we could give it some gray areas. We can make it fit whatever we want. So in my opinion, I wouldn't use the word idol for a cigarette. What I would use, what I would categorize, categorize it as is selfishness. Because that's scriptural and that fits the real definition. I don't care so much if I'm around to see my kids get married or not. I don't care so much if secondhand smoke is affecting anyone or not. I don't care so much if I don't have enough money to produce a good enough lifestyle because I've spent $40 this week on cigarettes. It's an addiction. And the biblical definition of addiction is selfishness. So rather than try to make it fit this biblical word of idolatry, I'm just going to put it under the biblical true definition of selfishness. I, what you're saying is true. I agree with the way you're explaining it. But there's no reason necessarily to, to go grab another word when we have a word. Yeah. You know, you can't go smoke a cigarette, but hang on, I've got to go eat. You know, I've got to go get my comfort food. I've got to go, you know, and. Yeah, sure. If food is your comfort and what you have to have, is that not the same as smoking cigarettes? Sure. If, if, if you list, if you listed. Hold on while I grab a chocolate chip cookie. If if you list, you know, the, the strongest addictions to humanity and, and you look at the, the problems it's causing our culture and things, you know, you're going to go to the big three right off the bat, which is um, drugs, uh, gambling, and pornography. Um, and And then you begin to break those down. And when you break down the drugs, you know, all of my study and, and everything that I've ever been taught tells me that the two strongest um, addiction chemical imbalances that can take place in the human brain is, is sex and nicotine, and that they're almost equal in power. So you think about that and you wonder why somebody you know, quits heroin but not cigarettes. You know, those, those two, that's the big two. But from... from from the the sex and the and the and the nicotine and the the poppy base the the heroin and the, the coca base the cocaine and all that and you keep going down and you you ha if you're going to keep going down the list you have to end up pretty quickly at caffeine at sugar at at fat grease salt uh, you have to end up there you have to If you don't, I mean, you can make your own little pretend boxes if you want to, just like most religions have about their doctrines. But, but if you're going to be honest like we are here, you know, you're going to end up there. 
Everybody just the big old sigh. <sighs> <laughs> what does a Christian smell like? <laughs> <laughs> uh, help us, Jesus. What time is it? Oh man, we're actually we're doing pretty good. I'm proud. Of, I'm proud of us. Anything else? All right. Praise the Lord. God bless each and every one of you and share these videos and podcasts and follow our podcast at the next Bible study and like us on Facebook, donate at hmaministries.com, all that good stuff. Um, I assume this is a really, really, really small crowd for us. And I know because it's Thanksgiving week. Um, go ahead and let this roll for just a minute so everybody can hear this. I really assume we probably won't have one in December, and I hate it. We probably won't have one in January either, because we, a lot of us go to Bethany Holiness Church, and we have a, a January revival, uh, every year. For a month, yeah, and uh, so I don't want anybody to think we're falling off. I will produce some podcasts in December and in January. You will be able to go listen to them, and uh, trust me, I'm not doing this for me trying to do it for you if uh, you guys don't want or don't need it i'll quit in a heartbeat <laughs> but uh, i'm getting tons and tons and tons of feedback on it so as long as it's something that's deemed necessary we'll produce them even if we have to miss a couple months and then jump right back in in february maybe catch a couple of them that first month and do some more so you're talking about the bible study not the podcast yeah the bible study the gathering we won't have in december or january far as I know, um, the podcast, I'll produce some so people have stuff to listen to. If you have extra questions that I don't have yet that you want answered, um, what I do is I collect hundreds of them and I try to find the ones that are being asked the most often in different ways or the most valid ones, I think, that are helping some of these younger people the, the fastest and, and we try to answer them. That a king would know my name, that you would know me, yet use me just the same. I know I'm not perfect, but I'm willing. You're the potter, I'm the clay. Oh Lord, I'm available to you. We see the sign. We know you're coming soon. There is much to do, but the laborers are few. I hear you calling. I will answer. Use me, have your way. Oh, Lord, I'm available to you.
knowing